John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. You have accessed entry 877.MT2508, certificate number 47911, the Osage Headrights. Have you, over the last couple of years, been in places or events that uh, that began with or posted a land acknowledgement. How early were you aware of this phenomenon? Well, you know, over the last couple of years, I have not been to very many events. Places, yeah, yeah exactly. Um, but I did start to hear from academic friends who were in contexts where people were giving academic presentations that there were acknowledgements of land rights, and particularly here in the Northwest, where there are both a lot of universities and a lot of active tribes and and a, 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 I think a, a general awareness mm-hmm. of— a good, uh, a good number of guilty liberals. There are a lot of guilty liberals here and also a it's lot one of, of— our one of our main exports, apples and guilty liberals. <laughs> it's true. But the tribes are still very um, engaged and You're active right. and talking to each other quite a bit. Like there, there are still treaties that are— um, being negotiated and there are some tribes that aren't recognized that are trying to get get enough signatures on the petition and, right and yeah. there are and they're finding there's a lot of resistance from other tribes right who are like you're not real you're not no your tribe is just a subset of our tribe so i anyway but but the but the land acknowledgement conversations that came my way were all people kind of writing me like can you believe this style kind of kvetching like they're they're second in line to take the podium and they hear the first person say i'd like to acknowledge that we're on ancestral tribal land yeah here the university of washington is is situated on ancestral land and then they're looking at their notes going oh my god what am i didn't mention any indigenous people yeah, am i supposed to say something I, i'm giving a paper on on mass spectrometry plus if you're spectrometry. the if you're the specter if, if you're the second person do you have to be like Hey, uh, I just want to note that I, we're still, <laughs> as we were 45 minutes ago, on stolen land. What the first person didn't mention is that <laughs> and, and actually I feel, and it's I a feel, subset of that And tribe. I feel like my commitment is maybe even greater than his yeah, to, to these right. issues. Uh, my dad always said, because when I was going to the University of Washington, you know, there's, there's something spooky about 
University, Washington, University of Washington, and, and particularly the AV, um, there's always something wrong about it. And when I first showed up there in the late 80s, I remember talking to my dad, who went to the University of Washington in the 30s and 40s, and saying like, oh man, there's something, there's something about the AV that's just not right. And he said, it's always been that way. In the 1930s, there was something wrong about the AV. It's got to be a different thing. Well, like, that's the thing I was saying. Today it just like, smells like they need to change the oil on the, on the Euro French fries fryer. Well, but no, I mean, like the kind of, uh, I mean, I was talking about a sort of skater, street kid, punkarama vibe. Yeah, the AV rats were strong in that era. And now I think if you go to the AV, there's definitely a like, whoa, this is, this is how is this place still functioning? It feels like a riot on the verge of sparking off. But he was saying in but the there's 30s. there's a target and, now. <laughs> in the 30s and 40s, there was something wrong about it. And in the style of the time, my dad said, uh, this was in the 80s. He said, we always thought that it was that it was built on an ancient burial ground. I knew you were going to say Indian graveyard. Yeah. Because that's kind of the limitation of the land acknowledgement uh, thought technology, as you would say, in the previous generation was... What if this is a burial ground? Yeah. Ghosts. It's, it's, it's a burial ground, and we built this um, this strip full of falafel restaurants on it, and now we're being punished. It's We're paying the price. Isn't it even... Is that a trope in the Poltergeist movie? Is, isn't there some haunted yeah. house movie where it's strongly implied? I guess The Shining has that kind of subtext. No, the and, Poltergeist, they, they put a swimming pool on top of a... Oh, but, yeah. It's literally... There's archaeologists being like, don't do this. Yeah, except it was a, it was a Western graveyard that had been moved... Oh, okay. But they only moved the gravestones. They didn't move the bodies. And it doesn't say it's indigenous people. It's I don't just think so. it's just some kind of front, uh, unspecified frontier era it's, thing. It's frontier people that are mad that they're under a swimming pool. I mean, the trope that arose from that joke is just that. Um, well, obviously, all of America's problems is that are a result of the fact that the whole country is a burial right. ground of indigenous people, which is kind of a dark. It's dark comedy. Surely I would say. there were a lot of places that. No one was buried. You'd think. I mean, we have the population today is greater, and there's tons of places out there where nobody's buried. Look at like your neighbor's side yard that I'm looking at. Yeah, I mean, I've dug holes all through my yard. I haven't. <laughs> I find raccoon corpse. skulls all the time, but but you're super disappointed not to find a single corpse. Not a single corpse. Uh, yeah, I was just kind of wondering how national a phenomenon this was because it's increasingly prevalent here. The in land the acknowledgement. Yeah. yeah, not not the digging up corpses <laughs> or or raccoons. It seems like another another politicized thing that if it would be anywhere it would be here for sure yeah but i, I think it's also something that you hear in canada yes. a lot now and then there are going to be people in this in the desert southwest and in the southern states who explicitly do not acknowledge that they're speaking on uh oh yeah when native is, ground where's the first anti-land acknowledgement in desantis's florida like right at some desantis university you have to get up there and be like yeah the seminoles are not getting this back <laughs> choke on that well so then of course it's an interesting thing right land acknowledgements like that's interesting and so i started researching it or at least reading about it online and you know invariably there are 200 comments after every uh, instance of it of people relitigating the Western expansion. Here's, you know? <laughs> here's the thing I discovered. I guess a couple things. One is that, um, you know, I see these things very commonly and they're very nice, but I was, I was kind of, you know, you go to a movie at the Seattle film festival and there's now a one minute short film where you're reminded about the, the muckle shoot and the Duwamish and the, and they're all, um, it's a very slickly made thing delivered in the actual 
languages of the people, giving a greeting, telling you what some of their uh, tribal ethics values are that they hope will be respected. Um, it's about as good as you can do that kind of thing. But the other thing I learned talking to respected my, there in the movie theater, like when you get up to get some popcorn, like just be aware. I mean, that's kind of the funny dichotomy is you're seeing them in these places where you normally are not in, uh, inclined to think about 19th century land rights. Right. Like there was a case at Microsoft before some kind of launch event for a product where this being Puget Sound area, somebody got up and did a land acknowledgement and it just became a funny meme online like, haha, why are they saying these funny words with a lot of Ks in them? You know, so it's like kind of the the lamest thing you could say about somebody else's language or culture right? going viral. Um, but my brother who, sorry, my brother-in-law is a, works for the Bureau of Land Management in Oregon. And as a result of what his new post is, he's been doing a lot more interfacing with the tribes and actually goes to training meetings with kind of experts in that relationship and people who do interface from the tribes with the government and one thing he's learned as he's kind of gotten more involved at the federal level is a lot of these people just hate the land acknowledgments. The feds, the, the, the people working with the tribes. The Indians hate the land acknowledgments or a lot of the leaders and scholars he's working with. Interesting. And their case is, their case is, I mean, at best, this is pro forma. This is a way to, you know, say, to pay lip service to, sure. you know, we care about tribal lands and their values and stuff of course performative performative right and obviously no good touchy-feely liberal of which again this area has many (laughs) likes to be reminded that a lot of their liberalism is kind of a performative veneer and that really if you were asked to make sacrifices for this cause would you actually be be interested in paying reparations to the muckleshoot tribe sure or you know there's six episodes of atlanta about this answer no Right. For a lot of these people, no, like I'm happy to do the performance that makes us all feel good as affluent white people in this movie theater. Well, what they want is for the University of Washington to do something or they want the they, they want somebody to do something. My it, guess is, but it's a NIMBY thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, yeah, why aren't our institutions doing more? Yeah, we should do more for the homeless, just not anywhere around my hey, house. Hey, did you know your apartment is on stolen land? Uh, I got to go. <laughs> Uh, so the tribes are, are mad about it. Well, I don't, you know, I don't want to generalize, but it turned out within that community, there are a lot of native voices who are saying at best, this is just a pro forma kind of lip service that lets people, um, off on the real issues. I'm, I am, uh, I'm persuaded by that argument. It does, it does seem pretty likely. And at worst. (laughs) And at worst, it's like, you know, yeah, we don't like to hear that. Hey, by the way, we're on your land, uh, we're having a film. Hey, guess fe- what? We're having a film festival. <laughs> you, you were neither consulted nor invited. Like it almost seems like it's rubbing the the indigenous faces in the, you know, in the fact that, hey, we haven't done anything about it, but we, we still have your land because of these coerced treaties. Right. You got up this morning. You t- took a shower. You you put on your clothes. You came to this talk. And oh, by the way, by the way, uh, here's a, another kick in the ball. Just a reminder, like we won that we won the culture war uh, right. 150 years ago, or the war, right? Or in, the in, wars. in some cases, not a culture war, right? Yeah. Like a lot of this, literally at gunpoint. I think it's funny out here because you know a lot of the a lot of this was still very much being like litigated the first time. Not in living memory exactly, but definitely in the memory of my grandparents. 20th century. Yeah. These treaties, right? Um, you know, I had, there were people in my family that, that spoke uh, Chinook mm-hmm. and there were still dugout canoes 
like in Puget Sound in the 19, what, 30s, I think. Whereas back east, a lot of that was all uh, tied up by 1680. They had all sold their dugout canoes to buy Packards. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, the early Packards. <laughs> so, yeah, it still feels very present out here in, a, in just a, a way that 200 years later we were still... Uh, it was new, new. I mean, in defense of those things, it does, every time I go to the movies, I have to think about the Muckleshoot and the Duwamish and the Snoqualmie people and the Coast Salish language and people are briefly top of mind for me. And it probably means that I'm not living my life right, that that's the only time is when I'm seeing some Romanian movie at, at the Uptown. Well, so as you were saying this, I, uh, I texted Sherman Alexi, friend of the show. Uh, wow. Sherman uh, often uh, not to out him, but he often refers to himself as the most famous Native American, beloved local Native American novelist. Yes, he was. He was in. He's been in trouble. Uh, you know, he was accused of of some improprieties and got canceled in the early Me Too days. Yeah, and is now working his way back into uh, into uh, the world. The, I think he's still good graces of the literary world. I think he still is very out of fashion among the the more um the people that are invested in him being out but every time he puts out something he sells a hundred thousand copies of it blinking an eye so he's loved and and hated mm-hmm. like all the best authors should be sherman i wrote him and just said what's your take on land acknowledgement he writes does back he, does he not mind being your token native american voice here oh, every, we, time you, we, every time you every time you we talk about hey, this stuff all the, the time. Can I wear this feather? The, the thing about it, the thing about it is that he is he's almost exactly my age, and we talk about politics a lot. Uh-huh. And he's like I think a lot of Generation X is struggling with the look. I couldn't be more liberal, but <laughs> and so so Sherman is, the rub. Sherman is from the Spokane tribe, and um and grew up on a reservation. So he very. He often makes the distinction between reservation Indians, as he would say, and people who are, you know, part of the Indian diaspora, but didn't actually grow up on the res. Yeah. Here's what he says about land acknowledgement. White liberal masturbation encouraged by some elite natives. <laughs> now that's his, that's his take, right? But that's well, it's interesting his that, take. It's interesting that there might be the idea that there might be powerful you know, voices in the tribes, indigenous voices who are like, yes, this is the kind of feel good thing we need. Whereas it might be the kind of the boots on the ground people who are like, oh, more of this. Well, when he says elite natives, he has, he has a, 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 a sort of a worldview in which there are within the universities in particular, but, but cultural institutions more broadly, um, there are native Americans, capital N, capital A, who I think he he says reservation Indians kind of look askance at them. They're, that they're academically elite, but maybe what's the idea? They've been co-opted. They just get they're getting trotted out by by a. I think more that they use their Native Americanness to to oh, as self promotionally, yeah, and as as kind of status okay. um, gaining stuff. And so, and he because he because he walks in both worlds, right? Mm-hmm. He was he had a a chair in Iowa named after him until they, until his, his cancellation and they took it away. But, uh, so he's both, he, he lives in both worlds, but I think he, he's, he maintains a healthy skepticism. 
Well, the the coerced treaties and the, and the kind of the multiplicity of of voices within uh, the Native American community are kind of at the the center of the story we're putting in the omnibus today. Um, which was, you know, I kind of thought it was perfect for omnibus in that it's a unbelievable story that uh, was basically forgotten, and to this day the it's taking some care, taking some careful kind of forensic history to kind of dig up some of the particulars of it. But what makes it not ideal for Omnibus is that it was a best-selling book a couple of years ago. Oh, the, the story, wow. the story of the Osage, in, uh, the story of the um, Osage land rights and what resulted in the 1920s became a best-selling book. Um, I think in 2017, which led to a huge movie bidding war, and in fact, the Martin Scorsese movie, oh dear, with Leonardo DiCaprio and Robert De Niro, uh, kind of touching on this story, is going to be a prestige movie in 2023 this year from I think Apple TV. Um, um so this is probably going to make it into the historic record without our help. When Sherry requested this show, uh, a Patreon donor, and I guess maybe this is my own ignorance involved, I, to my shame, had never heard this story. And oh. I'm sure until, you know, this book came out and it was on Terry Gross, I'm sure there are a lot of people in America of all walks of life who had not heard the story of uh, what happened to the Osage Indians um, from the 1890s on. And it's fascinating. I mean, it really kind of reframed everything for me about what you know, what the progression of that, you know, those military engagements and then the culture war were for indigenous people in America. Well, what's interesting is that, uh, during my literary theory years in the, um, in the nineties, we read a book in one of my classes about, uh, the oil and the Osage, the Oklahoma oil thing. And, um, and so it was present in, in kind of academic revisionism. I guess um, it's maybe an, speaking of Oklahoma, it's probably analogous to all the black wall street stuff. It is that we were not taught. And then it kind of finally made its way out of academia, academia into the mainstream culture through kind of, you know, it's shameful that we don't know our heritage kind of avenues. It's a, it's a, like an adjunct to the black Hills uh, story of, like, oh, we this is garbage land, and we're going to give it to the natives. Oh, it turns out it's full of gold. Uh, it's the t- most uh, no it's, take backs. It's the most remarkable story of that kind I had ever. You know, like you, you, if I had just seen the Scorsese movie when it comes out, I think I would have thought, well, obviously they amped up all the history because this is impossible. It is not impossible. It's so it's so amped up. This you, this really happened. I hope the Scorsese movie starts like that. This really happened in Oklahoma in the around the early twentieth century. The the Osage people were once the mighty Midwestern nation. You know, we've talked about the Cahokia people in this forum. Um, the Osage people had risen up in the Ohio River Valley. Um, somewhat subsequent to that, the tribe had developed. But I guess when the Iroquois moved, and I think by then this is we're talking about 18th century, and it's probably a white people-inspired move. When the Iroquois moved into their hunting lands— the Osage people headed uh, south, and they kind of became the. I guess are we allowed to say Midwestern for Missouri, Kansas? I, that's Plains, right? Yeah, they would say no. They, they would say no. They'd say yeah, right. I mean Missouri, though weird. 
Right. What do you, what can you say about Missouri? <laughs> Weird. You have to start the start at the beginning. Missouri's, of course, St. Louis. Modern day St. Louis is where the Missouri and the Mississippi. Yeah, uh, we're the talking about the, pl- of the are. plains. And uh, as a result, I think Osage actually means people of the middle waters because they their their civilization, their nation was headquartered kind of there where the the Mississippi, where the Missouri runs into the Mississippi. Mm-hmm. Um, they uh, traveled. They were the buffalo hunters. They traveled following the buffalo. There was also some agriculture. I don't know how much of that is pre-contact, but they were an agricultural people. Were they building mounds? Post-mound life. um, But they were kind of the epitome of the great Midwestern Indian. You know, they were known, of course, to the early um, colonists. Thomas Jefferson, when he was president, called them uh, a great nation, uh, you know, and said they should be treated with great respect and friendship. And in a lot of ways, this is because they epitomized these white settler ideas of the noble. Of the yeah, they savage. were they were a tall, noble people, brave, you know, full of military courage and prowess, great great writers. And so this really w- was what you know, eighteenth yeah. century white people were eaten up. Um, unfortunately, then America becomes a nation, and then it has to deal with this brave, proud nation now on its borders. Right. And a nomadic people. They're nomadic. Uh, they cover, a t- they covered hundreds of millions of acres. They were, they were like the, you know, that's com- probably comparable to the original 13 states. They're, you know, they're a big geopolitical power on the continent. Right. And we don't think about this period this way. We kind of, I think at least this is me. I think of the, the tribes of this time as kind of like, you know, doomed lame ducks, you know, remnants of another time whose whose days are clearly numbered. But after American independence, this is a new nation. It's just won a tough war. It doesn't have a lot of money or military or prestige. And it's legitimately worried by this giant Osage nation yeah. on its western border. Like this is a, a war of geopolitics to the degree that they don't want to go to war against them. Um, what happens is that Meriwether Lewis of Lewis and Clark fame is now kind of a important federal Indian agent type. And he recommends that, you know, the Osage are powerful, so powerful that we don't want to tangle with them. Let's arm the other tribes. Oh, that's a smart move. Yeah. So, so the U S government is, you know, so worried about these noble warriors on horses that they start funneling guns and money to the other tribes in the area. It's funny they were there were there were so many factors colliding right there. You know, there were the Scots Irish who did not sign off on the American project who were like, no, actually we should fight the Indians. We want to farm our haulers and we're tired of right the competition. And then, you know, the whole Jeffersonian idea that um that that just believed that the Western enterprise was such a, such a noble one itself that it would be convincing. Like Jefferson, I think spent his whole life thinking that you could just show the Osage how wonderful living on a farm was. We would have called it civilization. Yeah. And, and you could just say, no, 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 check it out. A barn and then corn and you don't have to chase Buffalo. And he, constantly was sort of like come on we've just got to we've just got to convince the nomads to settle and and adopt you know a kind of village life and it was self-evident to everyone yeah. you know of course they want to be 
good Christians wearing suits. Yeah. Once and, once they see this, they'll never want the the communal life they had. Particularly that they already have so much inherent uh, right. nobility. Great people like this will be the first to say, yeah. Yeah, they're going to be Anglicans, if anything. And this continues, as we'll see, well into the Dawes Act of the 20th century. This idea that um, the enlightened, um, maybe even progressive thing to do about Indian affairs is to assimilate. Yeah. Uh, is that compatible with Marxism or no? What's your feeling? I mean, about you that? see it. I mean, honestly, it's pretty equivalent to what we see in Europe today, where a lot of the what we would think of as Islamophobic laws are coming from the left. Yeah, right. You know, good defenders of enlightenment values. Hey, the main thing France needs is not to have headscarves on the bus. Right. So that everybody learns French and becomes French. Right. Which is the which is the big project. And this is coming from you know this is what we need. This is the the demand of of good progressivism is right. to make sure that these ideals get enshrined in everybody where and it's so funny to us where you have to be pretty far on the right to not be a kind of a george w bush islam as a religion of peace type you know you, you have to be pretty far right wing to be like we need to get rid of all these brown people and their headscarves you know that's a fringe right wing idea here yeah although in france i i don't Think of any right-wing groups that are pro-headscarf. <laughs> right. None of them are complaining too much. I mean, that's what gives you such a nice broad coalition. Yeah, that's right. Against Muslims. Well, and this is what I was just saying. You know, the left now is is increasingly divided between people that are Enlightenment thinkers and people that feel like the Enlightenment itself was some sort of colonial capitalist project. It had, it had some issues. <laughs> So yeah, like it's the, it's not too different here where it's, you know, it's kind of a, a you know, well-respected, edu- educated people generally think for well over a century, oh, yeah, we love the red man. Let's send him to law school. Yeah, for 250 years. Basically, right? yeah. yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, as a result of government policies and just the westward push, it's a rough century for the Osage, a series of smallpox pandemics, a series of, you know, quote unquote treaties, largely coerced. Wars between tribes. Yeah. And, you know, tri- wars between tribes as well. They end up on a Kansas reservation, um, you know, pretty far from what, you know, far from what they consider their ancestral homelands. The wrong, the wrong part of the plains. Yeah. And then they're struggling with all kinds of things. You know, squatters constantly coming into, you know, even though the government has said, hey, this is tribal land. Guess who doesn't care? Scots-Irish guys with a wagon, you know, so they're, they're constantly having their, you know, kind of the, you know, the equivalent of Palestinian West Bank settlers today, people coming in and being like, well, we're building a town over here. You, uh, why don't you call the Bureau of Indian Affairs and see what happens? Yeah, exactly. Write a strong letter. Right. Then the Civil War comes and now it's both the North and the South. The, the, you know, this is Kansas, Missouri. Kansas, so, Nebraska Act. So they're getting raided on both sides yeah. by, you know, parties from both the Confederacy and the Union. It's so great to think of a time when Kansas and Missouri was really the hot land in the United States. Like That's where it's all happening. Hardly anybody wanted to live in San Diego at the time. It was all like, hey, clearly we all want to live in Kansas and Missouri, but what about my slaves was always the second question. <laughs> God. Not compatible with Marxism. No. I mean, and that's why that's why the and that's why it was such a an important bargaining chip and keystone part of the country, obviously. But um, but around 1870, an Osage chief says, you know what? I've, he can see the writing on the wall. I've had enough of this. Things are going terribly on this place we've been forced, this terrible place we've been forced to live in Kansas. No offense to modern Kansans. 
None, none, none taken as, as the representative <laughs> Are you speaking here. speaking on behalf? Should we do a land acknowledgement on behalf of Kansans? As someone who's been to Dodge City, I can say that anybody in that region knows what they've got. And he said, here's the play. Let's sell this reservation land, which we now have by treaty, sell it back to the government and use the proceeds to buy our own land. Not something we've been gifted, but like something we'll have a deed to. And then, smart. But yeah, this, wasn't there, weren't there conditions on reservation land that you couldn't sell it? Yes, but here's the thing. After the Civil War, the Grant administration is now kind of a peacetime administration, and they are willing to negotiate. Oh, you know, okay. they, they, they're going to give the Osage a dollar twenty-five cents an acre, whereas it would have been like a sixth of that just a few years prior. Um, they're going to play fair. I mean, they're not, but this is kind of the new, the new openness. They're open to, they're open to buying the land back and saying, sure, sure. Uh, and crucially, the Osage have said, and don't worry, we're going to head to Indian Territory, which later became the Oklahoma Territory, and it's now the state of Oklahoma. This was called Indian Territory for many years. So there were some guarantees. Uh, the Osage said, look, we're, you're going to give us this money, but we're not going to move to New York City. <laughs> right. We're going deeper into a place that you uh, think isn't worth clearly it. Clearly, you can see on the map the place that white people don't want, and we're getting pushed anyway. But It says right there. They've seen the writing on the wall. We're going to buy this land um, because they've learned from their reservation experiences in Kansas that it's just this is just going to keep happening. So interestingly, they are kind of... They have assimilated, right? Yeah, right. They're yeah. like, no, 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 private property. That's what we're going to use to to defend ourselves. <sighs> yeah, but they're not, you know, as a people, they're still going to live the same communal lifestyle again right. until allotment hits a few decades later. But they're going to do their best. But they're, they've decided, hey, we, we're going to play the white man's game in Washington. And they send, you know, their smartest. They, they're lucky they have a very shrewd, eloquent um, tribe member named Palmer. I think John Palmer, who really impresses everybody he talks to in D.C., you know, just such a such a smooth, easy talker that he's able to get these government agencies and bureaus to sign off on these plans. Do they get a fair deal? They get a dollar twenty five cents an acre, and they say, "Don't worry, we're going to go someplace that can't really be farmed." They pick non arable land in Oklahoma, and they think this will keep the feds off our back. Even um, the buffalo don't want to be there. It's, uh, the thing is, what turns out to be in their favor is it's actually pretty good grazing land. You just can't grow crops there because the soil is very rocky. Oh, I It's see. good soil, but then you get down six inches and you don't want to hoe or plow anymore because But you can big keep rocks. cows. Yes, but grass grows beautifully there. And so what turns out to work in their favor, and I don't know how much of this they had planned in advance, is Texas cattlemen coming yeah. up to Kansas City are like, you know what? We need someplace to graze all thousands of heads of cattle a year. Heads? Thousands of head of cattle a year. Mm-hmm. Um... Why don't you send us, sell us some grazing rights? We'll take a lease. And the Osage, again, are happy to play along by the white man's rules mm-hmm. and say, okay, you know, um, let's get these leasing rights. So they're, they're doing all right for the next few decades with their chosen non-arable land in Oklahoma. This has been a good play. But, but that's interesting because it's a, it's a money economy. They're not using that land to keep a, a captive herd of buffalo and do a sort of theme park version of their old way of living. That's interesting. They're they're turning their land into money and then using the money to... I mean, this whole story takes place over a 50-year period where, you know, life is just changing for these people in right. any way. And it's it's only the older generation who's still aware of these traditional ways. It's, you, you see it happening with the First Nations people in the, in the north of Canada right now where, 
the young people just don't want to give up their iPhones. Yeah. The elders are like, you know, we were happier as hunter gatherers. And the young people are like, like, are you kidding? Like I've, you know, I've got a league of legends score to defend. Well, it's funny. I've seen it in Alaska. It's kind of a combination of, uh, yeah, we totally agree. And we would love to go back to a subsistence lifestyle and keep our phones. Exactly. And that's really tough. I've, I've been seeing in young North slope kids, uh, a, um, they, they've seen old photographs where there there's tattooing as part of the, the Inupiat culture, Mm -hmm. but along the way through Western schools, the meaning of the tattoos was lost. So no one up there really knows what the tattoos symbolized, but they know what they looked like. And so young people are starting to get those tattoos as a symbol of their tribal identity. Well, young people prefer vibes to uh, substance in any case. Well, but they're kind of then having to invent a a, a system of meaning, but it's not one. It's not the old one. No, it's not one of uh, hierarchy or whatever. It's just like a, it's, it's more vibe, right? It's more identity and less, presumably those tattoos had meaning, although maybe that's a Western overlay too, but yeah, exactly. I mean, and let's say, let's do a little Western overlay acknowledgement here. Like everything we're saying in this whole show is going to be, you know, filtered through, you know, a couple of middle-aged white guys reading another book by a New York, a white New Yorker journalist <laughs> about this story. And I'm sure you'd hear a bunch of different takes on it from actual voices in what is now Osage County, Oklahoma. Um, I've got a, a, actually a short list of acknowledgements here of all the ways in which my viewpoints are, are fully compromised. Um, we should just do it at the top of every show. Starting with the fact that I suffer from terrible depression and everything that I say comes from a place of feeling like everything is kind of If we just do this at the top of every show, nobody could ever send us hate mail. Yeah, that's right. Omnibus is a production of a guy that thinks that everything's kind of and uh, another I'll, guy that thinks, yeah, things are pretty I'll good. I'll do a privilege acknowledgement <laughs> at the top of every show. Uh, I, I, you know, nice guy, never married. <laughs> that's your, uh, yeah. that's your alibi for everything? That's what it'll say on my tombstone. John Rodder, <laughs> nice guy, never married. Not too late. Now, as you have already alluded to, you've kind of, um, you've, you've spoiled the big twist here. Which oh, I'm I think, sorry. No, I think a lot of people know that in the mid-1890s, Oil is discovered in oh, Oklahoma. Oh. And suddenly this Yeehaw. this land we gave to Native people, because we were like, lol, we don't want it. Uh, we got to put them somewhere. Um, basically, America's storage locker, you know, like uh, along the highway. Like, well, we'll just put them in this weird-shaped Indian territory. Sure, a rocky land, lunar landscape with no real water. The panhandle is not there on purpose. The panhandle <laughs> is there because other states got carved out of it, and you're left with this weird rectangle with a, with a nose. Right. Um, Oil is discovered there, and suddenly there's a land rush. Um, not like the the Sooner-era land rush of farmers and settlers in Conestoga wagons, but now it's the turn of the 20th century, and this is big, powerful business interests at a boom time for big, powerful business interests. Speculators in bowler hats. They want Indian land. Um, but here's what's interesting about the Osage story. When they finally, you know, over the years, they had resisted a lot of government attempts at allotment, which is what it was called when you would divide up communal or tribal lands and say, all right, this has to belong to this family. This parcel has to, you know, the parceling of the land. And largely it was done out of control and racism. You know, if the tribe owns communal land, it's very hard for white people to profit on it. 
But once you've parceled it up into individual parcels, now speculators and squatters and new settlers just have to, you know, find down on their luck families to get a hold. And then the tribal lands shrink over generations. This really serves racist white interests well. And it, but it also has the, there's still that, that slight gloss of, no, 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 it's just another version of like, yes. just, this is your land. Are you not understanding? It's so hard to parse Build looking back, barn. you know, like, for, you know, forcing out the native culture and language in the schools by teaching English. You know, there's a veneer of, uh, you know, this is what you got to do to get ahead. Think how yeah. educated and, and smart your people will be. And of course, it also serves the interest of, hey, let's eradicate the traces of this ancient, beautiful culture, you know? Right. It, but it that wouldn't have masters. been described as either ancient or beautiful. No. It was just like, it, it was just savage. It was uh, a non culture. It was like, yeah. hey, we're replacing this absence of culture. You're not wearing any clothes. You don't have a good God like we do. It's basically, it would, white people would have perceived it as an absence. Like, right. let's give them a culture. Now they'll finally have one. Yeah. Now that you're a Christian and speak English, you could go to London. It's 20th century revisionism to be like, oh, this, these beautiful, ancient, wise things they believed just knocked out, you know, in a generation or two. I'd like to acknowledge right now. That those were beautiful, wise cultures. They were beautiful, wise cultures. Ken, you know, we talk about Squarespace a lot on this show. And off the show. Like, often you and I will just sit staring at the sunset and, and think and talk about Squarespace. It's true. It's true. I mean, I think and talk about Squarespace even when I'm all alone. Uh, who are you talking to in that case? My friends that live with me your imaginary friends in my special place what do you uh why are you so passionate about squarespace well the thing is that although i have a community of friends and fans living in my head i also like to have the option at least of creating a community of friends and fans in the world and squarespace has a fully integrated commenting system that supports threaded comments replies and likes all things I desperately crave. You need a community. You need to create right. a community. And Squarespace templates have this built in. You could just out of the box, you could have a message board, a, a forum. What about on mobile? Like, could people use their phones to look at this new community? All Squarespace sites are optimized for mobile. <gasps> it's not an afterthought. Content automatically adjusts. So your site looks great on any device. But let's say I'm posting something to my new community, and I also want to make sure my existing followers on Twitter or Instagram see it. I mean, it, that seems laborious. I'm not going to do it. Cross-posting is one of the worst, and you can save time because it's built right in to Squarespace. You can auto-post your content to Twitter, Tumblr, Facebook, personal, your own brand pages. All post entries and Im images are optimized and tagged. So descriptions and titles will be correct wherever you are posting. It sounds to me, an unbiased observer, like they really have some great best-in-class tools. Should we, should we give people a special offer to make them even more inclined to try them out? I like to do that. You know, I'm recording this whole show on my BlackBerry Pearl, and uh, my Squarespace sites all show up on the BlackBerry Pearl optimized for that device. I can't actually claim that. If you want, if you want to have an amazing site with almost no effort on your own part, here's what you do. Head to squarespace.com slash omnibus to get a free trial. And then when you're ready to launch your site, you can use the offer code omnibus and you'll save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. That's squarespace.com slash omnibus. Try it out for free, no obligation. And once you realize how incredible it is, 
Go use the offer code OMNIBUS and you'll save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Devote your life to Squarespace and its teachings. Thanks, Squarespace. When the land was allotted, the Osage, through again through their kind of shrewd negotiators and Washington connections, were able to get a proviso in there that ended up changing the course of their history. They were able to say, okay, fine, we can't get out of this Dawes Act era allotment. Um, but mineral rights are going to be tribal. Okay. So like you can, oh, smart. you can sell a parcel of land, you'll get everything above the surface. You'll get everything above those unfarmable rocks. But everything below is mineral rights that the tribe holds community communally and will be held in trust by the federal government. Now, is this the, the, the first mineral rights moment? Because mineral rights play a huge role in all of the Western uh, territories now. It's a big thing in Alaska. Yeah. Like you've got the mineral rights, you've got oil rights, you've got air rights. This, I think this must have come up in earlier mining. Uh, I'm sure there are, a hundred Supreme Court cases on mining up to this point. Because, you know, by now we're into the early 20th century. Right. And I can't cite the case law, but I think I think somebody smart told the tribe, hey, like... Mineral rights. There have been all these cases. And the tribe may even have... I've read that the tribe may even have inklings that there's like... Oh, something un, un, Untapped wealth under there. Okay. Like, and... Uh, and well, they look up at the Black Hills and go, hmm. you know, it was the gold... And the parceling of this stuff off, I think it's clear to them that one of the effects, you know, whether it's the uh, stated aim or not, one of the effects is it makes it easier for white hands to get a hold of tribal land. Sure. So this is a safeguard. The federal, gov- the federal government agrees to create a land trust, which they will hold in perpetuity, and each person who is on the tribal roll in 1906 gets a certain share, you know, point blah, blah, blah percent. And these individual shares are called head rights. Which will, which I guess I was trying to find the etymology of this, and it appears to go back to like early colonial grants in the in the America in the North America, Canada, and the U.S. Um, head rights. It could just be per head. I, it might just mean per capita. Yeah. Right. Like that's well, what that's what head literally means. Yeah. Decapitate. Yeah. Um, and specifically, these are head rights that entitle you to a certain percentage of this trust and whatever value it comes to hold. Um, and it can be inherited by whoever your heirs are. So it. That head right follows your family down. And when oil is discovered, suddenly these head rights become extremely important. Because now it's kind of an Alaska-like paradigm where every member of the tribe is getting a little check every four months from this government trust as the money starts to pour in. But their head rights are not transferable in the sense that you can't sell your head rights. You can't, but you can only bequeath them. And this is what's very important. You can't buy and sell them because this keeps, um, you know, unscrupulous people from, from you know, chipping away at the at the trust. Right. Um, it can only be inherited. And so every four months, every member of the Osage Nation or everybody who was on the tribal roll before 1906 or whatever gets a check. And at first, it's like a hundred dollar check, and they are delighted. Let yeah. me tell you. And then a few years later, it's a thousand dollar check, and the oil just keeps getting pumped out and the size of the deals that are getting signed get bigger and bigger. And this era hits its peak in 1923 when the Osage Nation earns $30 million in revenue that year alone. And it's being divided among the the few thousand people, what you know, the whatever it is, five thousand people or whoever it is who have these ancestral head rights. It's basically this money's getting divided a few thousand ways. Wow. 
and everybody's doing millions. great. It's literally, they're mil- you know, it's, it makes national headlines because, you know, reporters and then readers, white American readers cannot get enough of this story of these are now the Kuwaitis. Yeah. Of 1923, they're, per capita, they are the richest people on earth, and there are all these fanciful stories told of you know they live in these mansions that look like English manors, but they're all made of terracotta, yeah. and they have servants, and some of the servants are white. Can you imagine? <laughs> Can you imagine a, like an Indian with a white? Ser- you know, this is blowing the. These are headlines in the New York Times. It's Beverly Hillbillies. Exactly, it's Beverly Hillbillies uh, with this racial overlay, yeah. and. You know, there are stories like, well, you know how you've heard that, you know, the first guy on your street just got a car? There's somebody on the Osage Reservation who drives 11 cars. And I don't even know how much of this stuff is true, but it it becomes kind of mimeographed lore, you know, before the mimeograph. It becomes kind of old wives' tales about this kind of exotic story of these indigenous people that are now plutocrats. Yeah, you, th- you, can, you can kind of picture that photograph of... Some, you know, like Indian guys in top hats. And, it's really swell suits. Yeah. Top hats and tails. That's exactly what it is. And it's because, it's, you know, the, the journalists can't get enough of this man bites dog story. It's the reverse of all the other stuff they have to report about, about indigenous poverty and, and, and so forth. Um, unfortunately, you know, up till now, this is a, a fascinating story for a freshman year history class of some kind, but it's hard to see how you're going to make a... Leonardo DiCaprio, Robert De Niro movie out of it, if I'm if I'm not mistaken. Hopefully they're not in red face. I am happy to report that, no, they are not. But I am unhappy to report that with this money boom, you'll be shocked to hear that it really changes the character of Osage County. It becomes... It turns into a like a, an Edenic paradise full of spas. That's exactly right. All the money gets pumped back into the community. Local mm-hmm. businesses pop up. Liberal Kansas becomes like well, a... Yeah. A, a lot of community pea patches. That's nice. You know, I just drove through the Panhandle uh, two years ago, and, and uh, none of that remains. Osage County is a, it's somewhere in North Oklahoma. It's not over in the Panhandle. It's kind of north central to northeast, if I'm picturing it right. Um, it's still Osage County, and the county is coterminous with the the Osage tribal land to this day. Um, but it basically it becomes a, a frontier boomtown with all of the all of the evils that that implies yeah um and specifically just unscrupulous awful people of all kinds pouring in you know you oh i see so osage county actually actually it borders tulsa yeah okay oh oh, it's right by tulsa yeah and it goes up and does it go all the way to the uh, kansas border it does it goes all the way up to chautauqua kansas Wow. The uh is that why you were in the panhandle to go to a chautauqua well what's interesting is i drove through it um did you not do any landing acknowledgement, John? I didn't. And the thing is, it turns out I didn't drive through it. It's so strange. It's just is north it off of the highway. Yeah, but it, it's just north of Tulsa in a way that, you know, I headed directly west out of Tulsa and then turned north. And there were there was a lot of signage and kind of uh, you know, truck stoppy yeah, sort of roadside attraction yeah, stuff. References to the Osage. But I, I wasn't, wasn't actually on the reservation at any time. Isn't that strange? Yeah. I mean, I'm not going to say it's because you're so racist, but maybe you should have uh, come on the reservation. You know what I was doing? I was living on Tulsa time. Tulsa time. And I was not living on Osage <laughs> reservation time. 
So, you know, you've got the normal kind of unscrupulous people that Westerns would tell us pour into these places, all kinds of sharps and sharpshooters and card mm-hmm. cheats and... Okies. Yeah, but also, remember, this is now the early 1920s, late 19-teens. Or, yeah, we're getting into the teens and 20s. So it's also a ton of just unscrupulous con men, yeah. speculators. Patent bus- medicine sellers. Businessmen who have big concerns and are interested in not paying full price. People with twisty mustaches. <laughs> yeah, all of them with handlebar mustaches, less scrupulous. This is something I just saw. Is this in my notes or not? The Osage name for white people was Inchtahe, heavy eyebrows. Oh. So maybe they would have thought I was pretty cool. Maybe they would have thought I was one of the good ones. Yeah, you you and me both. With our absence of heavy... Hardly any eyebrows. Of heavy eyebrows. Or, in my case, no handlebar mustache. And even your mustache is exactly the color of your skin. I don't know how you do that. It's it's weird. It's amazing. As my my hair gets gray, so too does my skin. (laughs) (laughs) They're both approaching the same kind of non-color. What's weird is that since you've been using um, Keeps... This episode is not brought to you by well, Keeps. I think. We have we've totally flipped. Like you know, you used to be the one that was worried about their hair, and I was oh, I had all this luxurious hair, and now I'm just I keep seeing all these all this evidence that I'm losing my hair. I think all it is is that you're a Johnson administration baby, and I'm just a few years behind you. Yeah, but you've got a thick, thick, rough pelt now. I've been using uh, I've been using now over the counter Minoxidil because oh. it's not a it's not prescription anymore. Is that right? Yeah. Oh. Use it preemptively. But don't you have to use it every day? Isn't that the problem? You do. I mean, I, basically it forestalls. I don't know why we're talking about this. It forestalls hair loss. Forestalls this is it. this is not a keeps ad read. But um, but it's true that if it will cause some regrowth. And if you stop using it twice a day, the, like the regrowth will like go away. Oh, boo. Boo. Um, so I'm a, I'm a minoxidil addict. Okay. Minoxy. That's cool. Minoxy overdose. That's cool, man. Um, if, you, if you ever want to talk to somebody. It's good to know. I'll, I'll find a, I'll find a meeting. The uh, so it be, kind of becomes an unsavory boomtown, and it's not like the law is going to help because again, this is like frontier law, you know, um, like we have here in the bunker. A lot of new laws, and so, and and you know, this is outright racism. As these uh, people of color become millionaires, as with Black Wall Street, apparently, you know, just a county away, right? Um, and, and same period, it, we're getting into the same period exactly. Uh, powerful people do not like seeing people of color have all that money. And in this case, Washington is free to pass laws restricting that. And the the um, the pretext they use is, you know, look at all these speculators coming in. It's a bad sort. You know, now you've got all the, you know, you've got the worst kinds of the frontier. You've got, as they would think, you've got Indians and you've got these um, whites on the fringe of society. Who knows what kind of evils are going to come up there? So kind of on the basis of, hey, this is the age of Gadsby and excess, and let's do some trust busting. Let's protect this tribe. They create these new laws restricting Indian wealth. Who is they? They is like congressional committees. Restricting Indian wealth in order to protect them. Yeah, exactly. They're going to get cheated out of all this money because, you know, they're Indian. Right. So let's protect them by saying you got to have a white guardianship for your Head right. Oh, how thoughtful. And they even create competency tests, pretty analogous with uh, Jim Crow era poll stuff. Right. To say, hey, which of you, uh, which of you Osage are actually able to manage your own money, can manage your own money. And it turns out that they concoct these tests. These tests are not written tests, but they're a series of 
of, uh, of criteria. And it turns out that in pretty much every full-blooded, full-blooded Osage will fail these tests and therefore will have guardianship appointed over their head right. Because the tests are, did you go to Dartmouth? <laughs> can you can you ollie over a curb? Yeah, yeah. If you if you can do a kickflip, can you play guitar? I don't know what the uh, yeah I don't know what the markers of non osageness or in their minds osage assimilation would be. But basically, they concoct these laws that I'm going to say more by design than neglect strip pretty much every full bladed tribe member of their seems like right. maybe not a coincidence that the tests excluded everyone <laughs> right like yeah i'm sure there was one. if there were some weird edge cases you'd be like boy this law needs to be redrafted but if it's everybody yeah um and because this is a, a frontier boom town intermarriage is starting to become more and more common oh between that's interesting between okay. tribes and that's this is not irrelevant because in 1921 the murders begin the murders, you say. And now you can see why this is a best-selling true crime book and a Scorsese movie. Um, in 1921, uh, an Osage woman named Anna Brown disappears from her home. Her family is distraught. The whole community is looking. A week later, she's found in a ravine. She's been shot in the back of the head. Um, again, these are wild boom towns suddenly, but this is very shocking yeah. to the community, like this kind of a thing. Um, sadly, this is not an isolated case two months later anna's mother if i remember the family tree right a woman named lizzie kyle who is old enough to actually kind of remember the pre-oil ways and is really by all accounts kind of a touchstone in the community for traditional osage um you know authority on traditional osage ways um she also starts to get sick and she is dead within a few months just after mysteriously wasting away in a way that nobody wider Osage can pin down. When you say she also was getting sick, would you describe being shot in the back of the head as a form of sickness? <laughs> no. She is also, her health is also threatened in that in her case, I see. She has gotten sick in a more gradual way than lead poisoning in a ravine. But a suspicious sickness. At the time, there doesn't seem to be much suspicion. In hindsight, we're like, this is starting to look like a pattern. Lizzie ha- owns four head rights. Her, she has some air. Let, let me see. What is this? Maybe her. All right. Would it consolidate if you had multiple relatives? It, it does. Her, oh. I think her, maybe her son who had, her son had two kids and, you know, they all died, had died earlier before the reign of terror begins. So she now has her own head right and three others. So she is dead. And over the next couple of years, by the end of 1923, it, it keeps repeating in the family. A nephew of Lizzie's disappears and is just found shot in his car. Um, and then a house blows up. A house is bombed under Lizzie's other daughter. Uh, I think her name is Ruth. Is bombed or just spontaneous, spontaneously blew up as houses do? Uh, houses are blown up all the time. Yeah. Um, sometimes blown up because somebody puts on just the right music. But in this <laughs> case, it's because somebody has put a bomb in the foundation. Oh. Um, so in this one family, suddenly four people are dead. And I'm, you know, and I'm kind of leading you a certain way by mentioning the head rights and giving all the backstory. At, um, at but some you point, don't have to be CSI Tulsa to figure out, hey, I, I see a motive here. As a mem- at a certain point, is there a member of the family that has 16 head rights? Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> it's basically the, the Kind Hearts and Coronets movie where the head rights are starting to mount and some King Ralph type is getting closer and closer to the inheritance that, that they desire. Uh, it's just a, a incredibly brutal time full of violence that shocks the whole Osage people. To this day, it's literally called the Reign of Terror. 
And what's worse is they're not getting any help from the establishment. You know, the the system out there is corrupt at every level, whether it's the government agents or law enforcement or the banks or the small businesses or the, you know, everybody you're going to deal with from the undertaker to the jury to the whatever is in on the take and doesn't care for the Osage people and is probably getting slip money from somebody. And there's a lot of incompetence too. You know, this is, this is frontier law enforcement. They're basically, you know, you need doctor whoever from CSI Miami and you're getting Doc Holliday. You know, you're getting gunfighters when you need detectives. I'm starting to see where the Leonardo DiCaprio movie is going to come from. I think you're not wrong Just another bunch of tin stars. Um, The tribe knows what's going on and they're like, this is not getting investigated by these dopes at the sheriff's office. These deputies are idiots. They start calling in private investigators from the big city because, again, these are... These are Indian millionaires. Right, right. Private investigators who normally would be called in to, to enforce the law against the coal miners or the people of color. Um, but in this case, they're actually working. But, you know, it all becomes a web of a crazy web of uh, the David Gann book is brilliant. Um, some of these people turn out to be corrupt and end up taking payoffs to look the other way and report to their clients that they didn't find anything. Some legitimately don't know who they're working for because there's kind of a weird chain of events. Um but then the reign of terror starts to affect white people. And if you've ever studied anything about sociology in America, you know, this is what's going to get the headlines. White people? When a white kid gets the disease. In this case, a local attorney hops on a train and is never seen again. And he's been, you know, he's been in representing the tribe. Um, a white oil man who's done deals with the Osage and is a friend of the tribe um, is on his way to D.C. to try to get the government to do something about this rash of violence. And he disappears. He's abducted and found beaten to death with 20 stab wounds on him in the state of Maryland. He almost got to D.C. So now it's a national story because now it's clearly whoever's doing this has a criminal reach that extends, you know, to the mid-Atlantic states. Right. And also... The victims are starting to be white, and that's what your newspaper subscriber, your white newspaper subscriber is interested in in the 20s. So this is now a national story, and this is no longer something where dozens of of Osage Indians can keep just disappearing under the, what's the expression? Under the headlights. That's not right. Under the blanket. Under under the the blanket. Behind the, the curtain. Under the wild moon. Under the wire. Under arms. Under cover underpants you know what i'm saying basically yes, in, under cover in, of the night in anonymity um and luckily there is a government there's really not a lot of federal police in the early 20s but there is one government agency called the bureau of investigations that has recently appointed a new director a young scrappy hero wait a minute that we remember as Hang j on. edgar oh, hoover oh there he is <laughs> finally j edgar hoover arrives on the scene uh and this is you know and if you know the story of the early fbi he's right. very much like let's get rid of these old-timey lawmen who you know are going by vibes mm-hmm. basically he's, he's moneyball he's like we need a new algorithm driven scouting situation that involves a lot of ivy league guys with um yeah straw boaters and and spats yeah, on their shoes tortoiseshell glasses and so he gets these new college kids in to to supplant all these the dumb Kevins that were previously running the FBI. That cool mid Atlantic accent. And as we all know, nothing bad ever happened again because the FBI turned out to be a flawless and above reproach organization. J. Edgar Hoover made America what it is today, and there ought to be statues of him in 
every city. Statues of him wearing a fine array of apparel associated with either gender. Right. In all U.S. Garter belts and tweed suits. So the feds move in. And now you see how we get a De Niro DiCaprio movie out of this. Um, The feds are gobsmacked to just find a web of criminality at every level in Osage County. It's one of the best kinds of webs. (laughs) Yeah, of all the kind of webs. I like the World Wide Web. <coughs> Not I, me. I like a web of intrigue. I do, too. That's a good web, That's right? a really good web. Uh, there's a web, of, you know, just, for, again, at every level, these these g- nascent G-men encounter, they find people on the take, people paying off other people, juries getting paid off, judges getting paid off, no matter how high the level. Um, nascent G-men is a great canadian band name nascent g-men but it's a little hard to pronounce isn't it nascent g-men the cover is the uh, nirvana nevermind baby but he's got like a, a fbi badge he's reaching for a badge instead of a <laughs> a dollar bill um and finally the investigation culminates in a couple arrests which go to trial and it rattles the community because you know it, you know any true crime podcast you would look at this guy first it's always the boyfriend it turns out all these people were getting into these marriages just so they could inherit a head right and, if necessary, you know, do away with as many Osages it took to consolidate control of their head right in their white guardianship. So who married whom? In this case, uh, William K. Hale, a powerful businessman known as the King of the Osage Hills, was the uncle of one Ernest Burkhart, who had married Molly Burkhart, who was related to Anna Bloom and Lizzie Kyle and... Henry, what's his name? All the other people, Henry Roan and all the other people in this family who had gone uh, murdered, gone, he, gone murdered. And he thought it through enough to see that eventually those head rights would accumulate in his wife? Yeah, they all accumulated in Molly Burkhart, who was married to Ernest Burkhart. And uh, and he was poisoning Molly. You know, he was doing the same kind of... And these people were just dying in terrible ways. Strychnine really does a number on people, you know, obviously getting... Stabbed 20 times in Maryland is not the way anybody wants to go. But so, so let's say 15 headrights accumulated in his Indian wife and then she dies. They, they, they would go to him. They would all go to him under these racist guardianship laws that had been passed. And again, there were other ways to get control. You know, a lot of these people were just plenty of dirty white bankers were skimming off the top of the Osage money. Yeah. You know, the Osage lost so much money under these laws, but a lot of people were unscrupulous and couldn't wait. And were like, Hey, could you kill your wife's sister and her brother and her nephew and then kill your wife? You know, think of, think of the head rights. And there's so many other ways to get rich. You can sell Amway products. <laughs> you can go to college or you can murder like seven Indians. And the interesting thing about this from a, tr- yeah, exactly. It's literally the, the 10 little Indians, Agatha Christie take, except they're just, they're going down one at a time. Oh. Um, it's uh, the David Gann book. This is kind of an ongoing true crime thing because David Gann talks to grandchildren of, of people who were alive during the reign of terror. And he thinks that there are so many of these murder stories that have not even been told. Like uh, I looked in the Oklahoma Historical Society says there were 24 murders uh, on Osage in Osage County done during the reign of terror. Is the Oklahoma Historical Society a reliable narrator? I go to them for pretty much all my questions. Mm-hmm. Like it doesn't matter. You go there first. If, if yeah, if I'm like, hey, how do astronauts go to the bathroom in space? I'm like, let me go to the OKHistoricalSociety.org. Um, but I think 24 is kind of the historian's uh, benchmark of you know what a terrible murder wave it was. 
And Gan talking to all these grandkids thinks there's so many untold stories. Like there might have been hundreds of Osage killed um, just to get their head rights. So Hale and Burkhart uh, are both- Follow the head rights. Yeah, follow the head rights, exactly. Hale and Burkhart are both found guilty despite them being just uber powerful. Uh, You can see why this is a movie. They're totally, it's a noir where the- the creepy old guy in his in his mansion actually does turn out to be pulling all the strings. Are we giving away the plot? Should we have trigger alerted this or the, the book spoiler came out, alerted? The book came out like five years ago. All right. Okay. I'm sure it's going to be clear who the bad guys are. Um, but, you know, sadly, the system is still working as you would expect it would for wealthy white people. The uh, William K. Hale, the king of the Osage Hills, uh, does not serve out a ton of his sentence. He's pardoned in 19... He's paroled in 1947. And Burkhart uh, serves a few decades more, it looks like, but he is pardoned by the governor of Oklahoma eventually. So both of these people don't do the life sentences you would expect for killing 24 people. Um, But, you know, the boom didn't last. 1923, when the tribe made 30, whatever I said, $30 million, that was kind of the peak. Um, First, the Depression hit and oil prices cratered. And then the oil under... Osage County started to get depleted. Um, But over this time, over that time period between the guardianship and the boom ending, which encompasses this reign of terror in which scores of people were killed, the Osage Nation was swindled out of hundreds of millions of dollars um, by these racist laws. And today, you know, the tribe is still there and they're, you know, they're resilient. They have about the same... 4,000 people living in Osage on Osage tribal land and maybe 15,000 more on the tribal rolls, kind of diaspora Indians, as you've said. And do they retain head rights? They do. They, uh, after these abuses, you know, the guardianship laws were tightened up gradually over the 20th century, largely due to, you know, very slow lobbying by the Osage with Congress and the Bureau of Indian Affairs. They got a law passed, you know, when it was clear that this stupid law had been the motive for dozens of killings. That really helped get the law changed so that the way it works now is, I believe, you still have your head right. You know, you still own 0.00129 share of all the mineral rights in the county um, per head right. And you can, when you die, you can bequeath it but to an heir. But if they're not Osage, if they're not on the tribal rolls, it's like a live estate, I think is what it's called, where they can keep that head right for their lifetime. Oh. So an Osage person can can bequeath their head right for that non that lifetime, but it's only one degree of separation. Like that person can't rebequeath it. And then it goes as what? soon as that person dies, it, it returns to the tribe. And there's been some interesting journalism done recently. You know, from 1906 to 2009, it turns out about a quarter of the shares, a quarter of the head rights, have left Osage hands. Um, you know, which is honestly better odds than most people of color had against white people during that time frame, as far as the amount of money getting sucked off. But still, you know, a quarter of those millions. And did that quarter then revert to the tribe? So an interesting journalistic endeavor is being done right now by Bloomberg. They have a um, an investigative journalism podcast called In Trust, which has been doing a deep dive into what happened to all that money. Uh-huh. And I think for many years, the government would stonewall them and say, no, we can't reveal who owns these shares. Of course, you know, because the government still administers the trust. Oh. So we know who has all these shares, but we're, we're not going to reveal that. These are, right. these are private citizens. These are nonprofits, et cetera. 
Finally, a Freedom of Information Act went, uh, request went through, and the government had to reveal the names of who owns a quarter of the Osage Millions. And this list was printed the next morning in the Big Heart Times, the, the res paper. Uh, tagline is something like, the only paper that knows diddly, or something. Uh-huh. And a full list gets printed on the front page of the Big Heart Times, like, here's who took a quarter of the money. It was the Waltons. It's a dizzying list that includes all kinds of big local institutions, uh, banks, universities, but, but multinational companies. But a lot of them in Oklahoma. Yes, a lot of it's local. Not all of them. Weirdly, movie star Jean Harlow is on the list, or I guess at this point, her estate, because she died in the very early 30s. Jean a, Harlow. A former librarian of Congress who uh, was drummed out for being a Communist Party member. A lot of colorful history tied up in this. And because of the weird daisy chain of how these head rights could have been passed on for years. Um, who knows how they got It's there. very complicated how some of them got there. Uh, you know, many of the institutions have immediately been able to say, yes, um, when such and such an Osage tribe member died, uh, she gave her head right to this, you know, fill in the blank, museum, library, university, whatever, in exchange for the creation of this scholarship, I see. this wing, this grant program. Sure. You know, and whether or not that's actually true or a retcon. <laughs> well, knows? I mean, now it can be investigated and hopefully these big institutions have receipts. Um, a lot of it seems to be shadier than that. You know, some companies, when they were informed that they had this head, hey, you own 0.6187 Osage head rights, first of all said, what's that? And second of all said, no, we don't. And third of all said, where's the money? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, it, presumably they've been getting the checks. You know, the, go- oh. the government is still writing, you know, the checks are smaller now, but every year, everybody with a head right gets some money. Check your mailbox. And so over the years, these institutions have been collecting this government money. And in, in some cases, without the left hand knowing why. Uh, Wouldn't that be nice that money? You're about to this level now, right? Where money comes in and you're like, I don't know where this. I always thought that would happen, and it never. As a freelancer, I always thought that would happen and never happened. Basically, it's it's you as an Alaskan that understands what this is like. Yeah, except they took away my Alaskan money. You moved here for the for the I don't know why I don't know for For the the waters. No, the waters are better up there too. The waters have got to be better up there. But now, so this ongoing investigation is both happening internally in all these investigations, in all these institutions being like, how did we get these rights to Osage money and should we have it and should we give it back? And they can sometimes not tell why? Yeah, like uh, a a lot of these date back to the 1920s. How cool. And, you know, government money has just been showing up and some accountant has been like, yeah, we'll put this in the fund with the other uh, um, subsidy checks we get for this, that, or the other thing. For the, for the stolen Indian land that we've yeah, we'll put standing the, on over yeah, here. Yeah, put the check that says stolen Indian land in the comment line in with the other crooked farm subsidies we get. It'll be fine. And that concludes the Osage Head Rights. Entry 877.MT2508. Certificate number 47911 in the omnibus. Sorry, I'm noisily opening mail. No, it's good. It's nice to get through the mail. Um, this is real production value here. It's like an old-timey radio play. Yeah, maybe you could do some ASMR lip-smacking while you're doing it. <sighs> Future links in the unlikely event that social media still exists in your era. Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram are archived at at Omnibus Project. Our handles, you know, in some parts of the country, they say at at, and in other parts of the country, they say at mm. Our handles were at Ken Jennings and at John Roderick, and our emails, email, 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 email
was You're doing uh, the Voynich alphabet. <laughs> the Omnibus Project at gmail.com. You can uh, join other futurelings wherever the name futureling points you when you Google it. You can send us real mail at P.O. Box 55744 Shoreline, Washington, 98155. It looks like you've got some real mail to tell us about, Ken. Well, this is going to be exciting. Uh, a listener named Robert, who is actually the one who requested, I believe, the Mulberry Mania sure. show uh, all these many years ago. A while back. A couple, a year or two ago. Um, apparently, at one point, I'm taking his word for it, You in that show, you wonder aloud how fancy it would have been to have a big bowl of white mulberries at a feast. How fancy. And? Uh, and you will have to wonder no longer because Robert has apparently found a superfoods company that now makes a white mulberries uh, mulch of some kind. M- mulch? Well, it looks Is like, that what we're eating now? Well, it looks like granola. Sure. But Why it, wouldn't you call it that? But it doesn't... The only ingredient here is organic white mulberries. Like, this is some kind of... You, it doesn't look like a dried fruit product. Wait a minute. You'd think that, it would... That doesn't have grain in it? No, you'd think it would be... You'd think dried mulberries would look like craisins, but apparently they just look like Quaker granola. Come on. That can't just be white mulberries. The ingredients don't lie. Ingredients. Organic white mulberries. Non-GMO mulberries. <laughs> but it says here it's packaged in a facility that handles tree nuts. What kind of business is this? I mean, we better hope these are good because he just sent us four 16-ounce bags of this. Okay. Beyond their perfectly chewy texture and delicately sweet flavor, mulberries are packed with antioxidants. It's like a superfood. Including vitamin C and uh, resveratrol. I'm opening mine right now. The same antioxidant found in red wine. Ken, finally we can get the benefits of red wine without the pesky alcohol. Like the guy I was on a plane with the other day who had six glasses of red wine with ice cubes in it and then like was ping pinballing from different from side to side of the jetway when he got off the plane. You you texted me and you were like, it's also 10 in the morning, right? <laughs> Wasn't he like the, the ten, 10 glasses of wine in the morning? <laughs> Our raw white mulberries, so these are raw, are grown in Turkey. These are Turkish white mulberries where they are harvested at peak ripeness and sun-dried to preserve their nutrition and exquisite flavor. Sprinkle them on salads, yogurt, smoothie bowls, and granola. That assumes that you ever eat salads, yogurt, smoothie bowls, or granola. And also they look like cereal or granola. Are we, should we support the Erdogan government by eating these? Well, that's a Here, good Here, are you question. ready to pop one, or am I eating this alone? Well, uh, do you want us to open both bags here? Why don't you give me some of your yeah. bag? Oh, I see how this works. Yeah. First, the Osage get the mulberries. Then here comes the greedy guy. Greedy guy who's like, I'm not opening my own head rights. They just taste like raisins. I'm not sure why they have this um, this they look powder on them. So not like a fruit. Yeah, the mulberry must have some kind of coating that dries into this. Here's your oh. ASMR. No, I see that they really are. They are. They're, they're, they're covered in nature's own cornstarch. Yeah, everyone loves that. They keep, do keep, taste keep like that. slightly less sugary raisins. It's like raisins you rolled in something. Bee pollen. Antioxidants. It's, it's definitely the kind of thing you only eat because they're so fur, so full of resveratrol. Because otherwise nobody would be like, man, I'm hungry for some white mulberries. It's weird because I just found a stem, and I think it's probably full of stems. That's how you know it's, that's where all the, the all the nutrients are in the stem. That's the resveratrol right there. Well, I'm going to definitely sprinkle this on my granola salad. Thank you, Robert. Thank you, Robert. We also got a note from Will, who says, how dare you? Oh! See, this is what you want. Oh, no! This is what you want. 
When you stole our story of the red ghost, I said nothing. Mm-hmm. But then, is he a camel? Wait, what? Who's our here? But then you did the Custer Wolf, another of our stories. Oh, here we go. From the podcast of mine called How the West Was <laughs> Which, which I guess is fine since no one listens to it and surely some actually listen to yours. Yeah, I guess a few. But if you do a story on how the beaver in medieval times would throw his testicles if attacked, we'll be coming for you. He'll be do, the beaver does what with his testicles? Throws them away when attacked. Wait, is how how is that an, an old west? I mean, topic? he's just he's basically begging us to do <laughs> to steal that idea. Keep up the stories from the frontier, which he spells with a W. Thanks, Will, XXXO, XXOO. The story of Ranald McDonald is a good one local, too. Wait, didn't we do that? Yeah. Didn't we do the, that's the, isn't that the guy that washes up in Japan or from Japan who washes up here or whatever it was? There's a. Somebody was washing up. There's a Wired magazine article uh, that says, the headline is, why people used to think beavers bit off their own testicles. Well, Wired and this guy's podcast, Will's podcast, are on the scene. Well, his podcast must be successful enough that they make T-shirts for each episode because... Not necessarily a sign of success. <laughs> it could just be Osage oil millions at work. He sent us the, the... I bet they did the Osage murders already, and he's just fuming right now. Oh, I bet he is. He's like, what else? What else will you take? Uh, the uh, How the West Was Effed episode 16. You should check it out. Um, but this what, is, it has just episode 16 has its own t-shirt. That's what I'm saying. This is a successful podcast. And here's your red ghost t-shirt of a creepy skeleton on a camel. Oh, it's really oh, nice. Actually. That's pretty cool. The red ghost of Arizona. Oh wait, I lied. This is XL. This is for you. Either that or it's Roman numerals. And this one's 40. This, um, this is weird because it's a pretty dark illustration. I mean, dark, like scary. And we actually got letters about how we shouldn't have such. macabre tales of animal cruelty but it's done in the colors of the san diego padres from the (laughs) 1970s you know it's hard it's hard to get spooked by something that's orange and and yellow thank you will and if anyone out there is listen is looking for a a podcast that has more old west content than omnibus i I really love that they do it appears they do a t-shirt for every episode of their show it seems strongly implied by the layout why do why don't we start doing that we only need oh my to. Gosh. We only need to do five hundred T-shirts. I don't know about you, but I can barely do an episode for every episode we do. Yeah. What's going on here? Oh, a couple more Christmas cards still, still trickling in from uh, a Josh and Rissy and their cat Thisbe say, Thisbe say, uh, Happy Holidays. Is uh, that Josh the- and Rissian? Is that Rissy? Oh no, Rissy and. Oh, Rissy and. Uh, Josh and Rissy are dressed here as a leg lamp and a, uh, a Ralphie pajamas wearer, respectively. This show is airing in March, right? So, <laughs> Right. This is mail that was sent probably a little late. <laughs> Christmas cards trickling in. Got here in February. Oh, look how cute they are. Josh and Rissy. Here is uh, the... Josh is dressed as the one leg lamp. Yes. Somehow he's put both of his legs into... One shoe. Into one sexy shaped leg. Mm-hmm. Uh, the McCray Hoys also wish us um, happy holidays, but with their card have sent us more stickers for your child. Uh, oh, related to the related to the generic food episode. Sorry, that didn't make it across. Generic food episode. Some funny ironic minimalist branding for Oh, for a bunch of bottles and a, jars, a, a can of a can of peas that's labeled "No Joy," <laughs> a mac and cheese that's called "No Money." Are they all related to the thing they are? Maybe. 
I mean, the beer says no worries. I don't know why the pickles would say no pain, though. Is the, that because the, of all the resveratrol in your pickles? The craft dinner says no money. I mean, that some of them make sense, like that mm-hmm. one. But the strawberries, no fear. I mean, I ate a lot of craft mac and cheese when I had mo money, no money, but um, no money, no problems. No money, mo problems. Uh, they're a generic. Oh, they're a generic take on Canada's iconic generic. Sure, no name. Sure, right. sure, sure. This person spent uh, uh, like eight Canadian dollars, which is like seventy cents U.S., <laughs> to send us this all the way from London, Ontario. Wait a minute! It costs eight dollars to send a letter <laughs> from just, Ontario. I'm just joking. There are a ton of stamps here, but I assume they're just because I love getting a letter from someone like this, where it's just like they're all two cent stamps. Years of accumulated stamps yeah. of different denominations and, and color. Well, palettes. that must be intentional. What's the code? Crack the code, Ken. Okay, is, see is if it you telling can, a story? See if you can solve this. 3817. No, no, it's done by, it's, it's pictographic code. Oh, okay. What are the pictures of? Airplane, First Nations mask, um, can't really tell. Maybe First Nations people playing lacrosse? Okay. Uh, World War II, bravery and in some kind of other plane. Queen Elizabeth, polar bear, Queen Elizabeth riding a polar bear. Mm-hmm. No, that's not real. Um, something that says cobalt, silver, argent. And it's got, oh, it's cobalt mining. You know, you know what made Canada great, John? <laughs> All of but, our cobalt but mines. Cobalt mines and how they pushed the, the rideable polar bears out to sea. This appears to be three fighter planes. All three of Canada's fighter planes are pictured. And then uh, a painting by Marguerite Bourgeois, a, presumably a great uh, colonial era woman painter of genre scenes but you can't make any sense of it in sense of it being a message a a narrative uh tell the queen that Mm -hmm. the cobalt polar bear is flying a plane into a nun i I don't know will do what percentage of uh futurelings do you think have hyphenated last names what percentage of married futurelings have hyphenated last names the mccray hoys appear to not hyphenate but to just use both names in as two separate is that, words. Is that the, the, the preferred style book now? Oh, I don't know. I still see a lot of hyphenates. Yeah. My problem is I still know a ton of married people, but I don't know a lot of people that are getting married, which is great. I don't have to go to weddings anymore. True. But I also don't know um, what the current mores are. Do people use semicolons ever? Like <laughs> Between their surnames? <laughs> yeah, all yeah. the time. The Roderick semicolon Jennings family. <laughs> I would I would maybe go with an N dash. N dash. I yeah. love the N dash. It's often neglected. The N is for neglect. Uh, also, please consider, please do consider supporting the show at patreon.com slash omnibus project. Your Patreon support helps us keep the show burbling along at the uh, brisk pace of an hour-long episode squeezed into an hour and 20 minutes <laughs> of time. Wait, I can make it longer. Uh, an anonymous person whose return address only says compatible with Marxism, question mark, sent us a fake court motion. How do you know it's fake? Um, because it's in the matter of Tiny Tim Petitioner and the Grinch Respondent. A motion for joyful year-end holidays. Whoever this Washington State lawyer is, somebody from the Socius Law Group, it looks like, has made their holiday card a fake, festive legal motion. Lol. Uh, that, I bet that got big laughs down at the office. You know, what would be funny is if it was a subpoena. <laughs> yeah, this is actually. <laughs> oh, yeah, the second page is, only the first page has like, um, has Dickens jokes. The second page is a, is a subpoena. 
Section 4, Authority. In the absence of any recorded law or statutes addressing this issue, Timmy requests that the court use its equitable powers to ensure that the Grinch be prevented from ruining the spirit of season so that acts of kindness and generosity may prevail during the holidays. Agreed. Agreed. Well, no, wait. Now, not to be a Grinch revisionist, but if the Grinch is prevented from ruining Christmas, how does the Grinch ever... How will he learn? How will he learn? How will his heart grow three sizes Do you know nothing about the American legal system and penal system? (laughs) Rehabilitation, (laughs) not an option. We want one thing and it's revenge. Revenge on the Grinch. Do you remember the SNL sketch where they do the end of It's a Wonderful Life, but Uncle Billy remembers where the money is and they all run off to Lynch Potter? So George, we, should, we should do that for the Grinch. George just sent me a link to it. Oh, yeah? Is that right? Just uh, George just, Bailey? Yeah, not George no, Bailey. No, 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 John. I, w- I want you to take a look <laughs> at this. No, just just like four days ago, he sent it to me because I had only just watched uh, oh, It's a Wonderful right. Life for the first time. And he was like... This now ha- you're finally going to get this. This happened in my kitchen. I saw this conversation happen. Yeah. I, I remember this. And he, so he sent it to me, and I realized if I had seen it at the time, the, the SNL skit, yeah. I would have gone on my earlier assumption that It's a Wonderful Life was like a candy-ass, la-la-la, uh, retelling of, of um, a, Just something a Christmas se- Something sentimental, scroogey. Yeah. yeah, and so, oh, they end up killing the guy because, oh, it's funny because... Because uh, the it, rest of the movie's kind of a goof. So Pollyanna-ish. Yeah. But now I realize that It's a Wonderful Life is actually like a like a socialist revolution movie. Yes, it is compatible with Marxism. And actually, the, the more violent ending is more in line with the, the themes of the rest of the film. So it yeah, was a, a real brave Marxist screenwriter would have been like, and then at the end they go kill the wheelchair um, using banker. That's right, and he had, he had it coming. And then once they have blood on their hands, they start killing more and more anyone <laughs> yeah. that's wearing glasses. But I like that the I, I love the idea of a version of how the Grinch stole Christmas, where the all the Who's down in Whoville wake up, and Christmas has been stolen, and they get a posse together yeah. and they head up Mount Crumpet, and they shoot the Grinch in cold green blood. So what do they do with the little dog? Max? Yeah. I can't say because... Oh, we, trigger we, alert. Yeah, we hear from people who don't like animal cruelty. Yeah, we get yelled at, don't we? We do. Listeners, from our vantage point in your distant past, we have no idea how long our civilization survived. We hope and pray that the catastrophe we fear may never come, if the worst comes soon, however. This recording, like all our recordings, may be our final word. But if providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry. We are